Welcome, Welcome from Alpha, from Alpha to, Omega. to Omega. Hello and welcome to the 54th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Monday, the 22nd of September, 2014, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week's show is brought to you by the very generous once-off donations of Charles A. and Peter J. You too can help combat the devil and all his evil works by clicking on that there donate button on the podcast website. This week, I'm glad to welcome back C. Derek Varn to the show. We discuss cancel communism and the ultra-left a man who told Stalin where to go and survived, autonomous Marxism and the Occupy movement, and the failure of revolutions. What is the ultra-left? Well, the ultra-left is a pejorative term used by Lenin to attack the Council Communists, other groups such as the Bordigas, who absolutely refuse to work with social democratic parties. This is actually important because they took an even stronger stand later, for example, in the development of fascism, they refused to side with bourgeois democracies against fascists, for the most part. There were two main branches that Lenin was referring to. One was Panenik's sort of council communism, which was really big in Sweden and parts of Germany. And then it was later on used to refer to also left communist Leninists such as Amido Bordiga in Italy. He was the chair of the Italian Communist Party for a while until Gramsci took it over and ran it into the ground. But Bordiga actually, you know, is an interesting man in and of himself. He was he was a major theorist of, of Leninism, believe it or not, but he did not agree with the suppression of various factions within the movement. He also thought that both Popular Front and United Front tactics were ultimately short-term-minded. The United Front is a theory by Trotsky. The Communist Party should unite with bourgeois liberal parties to fight fascism or to uh, fight for national liberation, depending on the context but should never lie or play down their own politics and their differences from bourgeois liberal parties. Popular Front was the idea that's really important in Stalinism and Maoism, that you not only side with them, but you do not, you're not honest about like, what your differences are. A lot of the issue in the Spanish Civil War, for example, was over the Popular Front. This was that they weren't honest with the people they were citing it and what their policy was really. Right. They were not completely honest. And as soon as it was over, they were going to turn and try to bring uh, Stalinist discipline into it. It was also that some of the the far, far left of, of both the communist and anarchist movements refused to deal with liberal Republicans in the Civil War. And so the Popular Front camp wanted to make them. But... In Italy, particularly, um, when Bordiga was the head of the Italian Communist Party, this is really relevant because you see the, the emergence of fascism itself. Fascism emerged out of the Social Democratic 
youth movement. Um, I mean, Mussolini, Bordega, Gramsci, Casa, all these people knew each other. So the fascism came out of a kind of a, a left statist kind of a view. Well, yes, but you should be very careful with that because it's also it's a left statist sort of view, but it also was very increasingly conciliatory towards reactionaryism. It didn't start that way, but moved that way very fast. And so the fascists used to have a left and right wing themselves, which is something people often either don't know or have completely forgotten. But anyway, back to this. So this is after the whole Lenin denounces the council communist, and he was particularly thinking of Paul Matik, Anton Panik, who I mentioned, Hermann Gora, Arthur Rule. Can we talk about what is council communism? Okay. Uh, council communism was the idea that Soviets, and by Soviets I mean workers' councils, which is what Soviet originally meant, should run production. It was different from syndicalism, as in syndicalism thought that basically these councils should run only the factory, whereas council communism thought that the entire social milieu should pretty much be planned by councils that are more or less confederated with central committees and whatnot. So each workplace would have a democratic council and... And also each area. And it would organize itself up to work on higher and higher levels of, of organization. So maybe to the county, to the state or whatever. Right, it sounds, which sounds a little bit like, uh, like anarchist and federationism. It's a little different, but yes. So Bordega actually sort of opposed this himself too because he thought that... Well, his his thought on on these councils, if they if they were too focused on sort of cross class voting, that they would just be easily dominated by various bourgeois parties or whatever. Panic. The only people who could be in those councils were workers, so they were workers' councils. You had to be a worker and you had to be voted from them. They also tended to be hostile to traditional trade unions who would not work with what they considered the revolutionary unions, which were overarching unions that had a militant base. And that was true for both of those sides. And Lenin sort of denounced them on practical grounds. And then this gets much more heated during the interwar period. So what were his practical grounds for not liking this democratic council structure? Well, he thought, it, he thought it, like, for example, that it couldn't mobilize fast enough. If you were attacked, there was no way for you to mobilize enough you know, armies and whatnot quickly enough. Also, he thought that, that they needed to appropriate more the bourgeois state. And that could be done through parliamentarianism and working through official trade unions. Now, Lenin himself was one of the primary theorists about the rejection of traditional trade unions. For example, when he talks about trade, the problems of trade union consciousness, which actually perpetuates capital. So the, it's interesting because Lenin was considered part of the left-wing communist movement before the Russian Revolution. Because his split from the Social Democrats, you know, the larger Social Democratic Party, was to the left of Kalski. And so he was against the trade unions and then... In the 20s, he was in favor of trade unions as opposed to council communism. Well, he wasn't in favor of them, but he thought that it was something you could work with. When he says you could work with, he means 
who is he talking about could work with it? He's talking about like liberal trade unions and whatnot. And he's not, and he's not talking about within Russia because within Russia they've all been subsumed by this point. He's talking about various groups outside of Russia. He's also talking about some anarchists and left Bolsheviks who were expelled in 1909 because they criticized the Brest-Lovish peace. He's talking about, and, and part of the problem when we talk about the ultra-left is the left communism is defined largely by the idea of the ultra-left, but the ultra-left is actually a bunch of groups who are not, they're not homogeneous at all. You know, for example, while most of these uh, groups have internal democratic principles, uh, Bordigas don't. But one of their biggest stances, they didn't work with trade unions and they refused to participate in elections in any way. So they really, really had issues with trying to work through electoral politics in, in the West. And this is not an issue in Russia, particularly in this period, because this is when Lenin actually suppresses all the internal tendencies and other factions within the Communist Party. In, within the Soviet sphere, left communism is basically crushed. It's linked to the Trotskyists, you know, the left Bolsheviks and the Trotskyists. It's linked to earlier left Bolsheviks, and it's linked to the anarchist rebellions at Kronstadt. So they are pretty much completely and totally crushed. Now, it's interesting because the, you can still hear a little bit of this left communist idea within the name of the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union, the Union of Soviets, right? But that's not – this is pretty much all irrelevant after the Russian Civil War. Do we see any of this council communism stuff popping up in Spain then? Well, you, you do, but it has a different theoretical background. The, the Spanish council communists tend to come out of the syndicalist tradition. And so they're not true council communists. They're syndicalist anarchists. What's the main difference then between those two systems? Well, it's a subtle distinction, but I think it's an important one. The syndicalist anarchists think that the, the main issue is control over the businesses and the means of production. A council communists actually think that it's a lot bigger than that. It's not that if workers just seize, you know, run the cooperatives or whatever by themselves, that they're still not transcending money form, they're still not transcending the value form, they're not able to really take the reins of society. And what about land distribution? Does this come into it? In Bordiga it does, although in Bordiga there's some really radical views on land and on the difference between rural and urban. But yes, so you have like anarchist-style peasant cooperatives that are all the way to cynical, cynical-style workers in the kids. But the thing is, the anarchists think that the main issue is crushing the state and then breaking up the, the means of production. They don't really have a theory about like how you're going to deal with money or lack of it. They don't really have a theory of value production. So what, what most left communists say about anarchists is that they're, they're just underdeveloped. There are people who are tending that way in the Spanish Revolution, some more of the radical syndicalists and whatnot, but they, the Spanish don't have the same, and I'm not really sure why, but the Spanish don't have the same tradition of this being as theoretically developed as they do in Italy, where you have Bordiga, who is, I mean, important to remember, he was a leader of the Italian Communist Party and had a seat in the Comintern, and he's pretty much entirely forgotten for Gramsci now, who was his immediate successor. 
So the common the common turn was the the third international. So this is the international group which is trying to spread revolution. Yeah, I mean he was. I mean he actually told Stalin to fuck off to his face and lived. That's quite the claim. I mean, I mean, he's probably the only person I know to have done it, and he's almost entirely forgotten. In what context? How did he manage to do that? He had a seat in the Comintern, and they tried to force the Italian communists to join a popular front. And Bordiga said no, and then said also that the ruling committee of the Soviet Union shouldn't have total dominance over the Comintern, and basically said that Stalin had betrayed Lenin, and he said it. He said it on completely different terms from Trotsky. Bordiga was not did not go down the same path as Trotsky. It's very interesting how they differed, but they were both in the large international communist movement. They both knew Stalin, and of the two of them, Bordiga was able to tell Stalin basically to screw himself, and he lived. Part of it is he was further away, but you know they got they got Trotsky in Mexico, so that's true. That's quite far away. Maybe he wasn't as powerful, not as big a threat. Bordiga, Bordiga was a bigger threat in the 20s, but he was so marginalized. But the Italian Communist Party was marginalized by a lot of stuff that happened in the 1920s and 30s. It only becomes important again with really not with Gramsci, but with his successor, Tagali, who was an out-and-out Stalinist. During the, the first part of the movement, it was probably the most radical of the you know, official communist parties. Gramsci is a very interesting man, but we, we largely know him for his literary theories. His actual politics were hard to fathom. He, he couldn't decide really if he was going to go with Stalin or not. He, he did, however, impose the Bolshevicization of the Italian Communist Party, which was to expel all dissident factions and to purge, you know, dissident voices. That actually really weakened the party. And a lot of people went to other movements, including the fascist. You know, and he's also, to be fair to Gramsci, Gramsci's doing this from prison. Gramsci's also has a million problems. He's severely disabled. So we don't want to be too hard on him. And he is sort of an inspirational figure in and of himself. But what he actually does to the Italian Communist Party leads to it being very marginalized and weakened and subsumed into the Bolshevik Party. It doesn't have an independent identity after that. And it never really has the vitality that it had in the 20s. It never gets it back. And it's not strong under, under Gramsci. Like I said, it only becomes strong in the 40s. Under, uh, I suppose in a war setting. Yeah. And the, that, Tagali was an out-and-out Stalinist. He was party line. So Bordiga gets completely marginalized in all this. If we were going to make a list of great Marxists in the past two centuries, Gramsci would be on that list in terms of great thinkers and practitioners of Marxism, along with Marx, Engels, Lenin, Trotsky, Rosa Luxemburg. But the strange thing about Gramsci is that in reality, he's more of a, in some ways, a lesser figure among, in the revolutionary tradition. I don't want to create too much of a pecking order, but he's more of a figure in academia. And that's what's really quite different. I mean, if you go into academics, you're not going to read Trotsky in a, in a literature class, even though he's probably written one of the best books on literature of any of any Marxist. But you will read Gramsci. In fact, you'll read Gramsci in an international studies class, a uh, international relations class, a literature class. And Gramsci, though, lived through the same period as the uh, as the other figures, aside from Marx and Engels. That is, he became a revolutionary in the period of Lenin, Trotsky, and Luxembourg, the period of 
the world war, the impending collapse of capitalism, at least people at the time thought, the success of the Russian Revolution, the attempt to spread it, the volcanic explosion of class struggle in Europe and in Italy, the place where Gramsci became a revolutionary. Like Trotsky and Lenin, he uh, was around during the period of the degeneration of the Russian Revolution as a result of its isolation. The attempts to build communist parties, splits from the reformists who had betrayed the revolutionary movement and supported their own governments in the war. He was a revolutionary who was active in Italy and part of that process of attempting to build in the face of the betrayals by the socialist leaders, the betrayal of the revolutionary movement. He was part of a process of attempting to build an alternative to that. That part of Gramsci is a Gramsci which is not really known. In fact, there's a deliberate attempt to split the Gramsci of prison, who wrote six volumes of notes that he wrote on various topics, from literature to revolution to a whole number of things, while he was in prison for 11 years before he died. He was in Mussolini's fascist prison. That part of Gramsci is the part that is emphasized uh, in part because of kind of elliptical and elusive character of the writings. He's writing under the eye of the fascist censors. So that, ironically, when he's isolated from the revolutionary movement, when he's in prison, engaged in all kinds of fruitful thinking, but at the same time, very fragmented, very cryptic. He uses a lot of coded words, and so that's actually the part that the academics love, because that's the part of Gramsci that you can play with. You can't play with the Antonio Gramsci, who's trying to build a communist party and overthrow capitalism. Has there been much influence then from the Council Communists? Has it had an impact anywhere or influence on current thinking? It does, but it does in a way that like skips a generation. So the Council Communists, and we need to be clear, Bordigas are not Council Communists, but they're both part of the ultra-left. The Council Communists become really important again in the early 60s. A bunch of very frustrated younger radicals, um, particularly around the Situationist International, some people who were coming out of the Maoist movement, who, although they tend to go back to Stalinism, get very interested in council communism. There's a bunch of reasons why, some of which is the emergence of the Second Shanghai Commune and the uh, Cultural Revolution, and that sort of makes its way out very slowly, you know, knowledge of that makes its way out very slowly to Europe. Some of it's, there's just a bunch of dissonant, very Dada-influenced artists who become very devoted to communi uh, communism, and that's your beginning of the Situationist International. And there's a lot of people trying to deal with, you know, now that the fascists are gone and the Soviet Union seems to be going in a particular direction that we don't, doesn't seem to be what we were promised, what all these people died for, then what are we going to do? And so a lot of people start digging into the second international communist movement and they find out, you know, ironically, they find out probably through Lenin's denunciation of them about the Council Communists, the Bordigists, and all these other movements. Now, the Bordigists are interesting in that they actually are one of the only movements to have a continuous party. Once Bordiga is kicked out of the Italian Communist Party, he founds his own party called the International Communist Party. But it exists in a very marginal form for most of the first half of the 20th century. But it's, an, it's a tiny movement, and it's limited pretty much to Italy and France. 
So the 1968 uprising in France, that was influenced then by these council communists? Indirectly through the situation, that's yes. And also, like, there's a couple other things that develop out of this. You have autonomous Marxism coming out of Aparismo. They also are influenced by the Atadomen, who are the kind of intellectual heirs of the council communist movement. So what is autonomous Marxism then? Autonomous Marxism is probably the most the most influential of the ultra-left theories. It's based off of a couple of things. One, it's that the working class should autonomously do its own liberation. And it is critical of traditional trade unions and stuff, just like the old left communists were. And it's interesting to me, I, mean, it, I don't know why Italy does this, because Italy, like, it, Italy's political spectrum a lot of its reactions to Marxism, because fascism is also a reaction to Marxism. But autonomism and Bordigism come out of Italy. And autonomism sort of becomes more popular after 68. It's very influential in the 70s. And when I mention the names of autonomism, like Nagiri, Verno, Bifo, etc., people will have heard of them. As opposed to when I mention the names around Bordigism, Bordiga, Kamet, Dov, people generally haven't heard of them. It's very influential, but it's very hard to to pin what autonomism is down after after sixty nine because they become very influenced by postmodernism and other forms of anarchism. They, they you don't see them writing as much on council communism or on class structure directly. They have relationships to people who are interested in that, like the Forrest Johnson tendency in the Marxist humanist movement. But there's so many different things about autonomism that it's very hard to like talk about an autonomous theory after the very beginning of it because it goes off in about a thousand different directions. What is the generic understand? Like, what is their core concept? The working class should liberate itself, and that people should have the autonomy to organize themselves and not not necessarily be involved in traditional labor groups like traditional trade unions or parliamentary parties. And their view for a, a new society is along the lines of? Marxism. But it's more varied than, say, council communism or Bordigism. It's more fluid. Yeah, there's much, well, there's just much more stuff. They're, they're more influenced by many other things that happen in the, you know, in the Italian and French academy. They're very influenced by Derrida. They have relationships with the post-structuralists. And I know a lot of people even who are in, in those circles who sort of have felt like they were too fluid, particularly in the late 70s and 80s, because it's very hard to talk about what they actually believe now. You can, I can talk about particular theorists, like we could talk about the theories of you know, Antonio Nagiri or Franco Bifo, but we can't. I can't tell you like this is what the autonomous movement is anymore. They had though a lot of influence on the Occupy movement. A lot of the people who were you know involved in early Occupy were coming out of David Graeber style anarchism and autonomous Marxism or autonomism. It's interesting to me that as Occupy has seemed to not go anywhere, that people who are far, far left inclined have tended to now go back to Bordigism and these things that we were talking about, council communism, because there's a lot of theorists in France in particular who 
were sort of important in the 70s and have faded away, who you are now seeing reprinted a lot in far-left journals, like Giles Dave, who I'm probably mispronouncing his name. Your European listeners can cringe every time I say anything French. Gilles Dove. Yeah, Gilles Dove. He was really active in the 70s. He's really active now. And he was a theorist of this idea called communization. And that has been really important on groups like the Endnotes Collective and these very small movements in Sweden and the United States. But a lot of those people come out of, you know, they're like frustrated occupiers. Trying to understand the structural weaknesses of the Occupy movement. Right. And they're trying to understand like... Because it's deeper than that. Which you, one of the things that Dave writes about, that also Kamet, one of Bordiga's major thinkers, writes about, is why the working class didn't become revolutionary. And they talk about, you know, the labor aristocracy theory that Maoists use. They don't deny that, but they say that in and of itself doesn't explain it. One of the theories that they come up with is the working class... The tactics used by the left in regards to the working class reinforce their identity as the working class. Okay, that sounds really strange, but to break it down... I'm a union man. That kind of an idea. Yeah, I'm a union man, or I'm, I'm a... Working class, working class, I'm proud. That's not... According to the ultra-left communist on the ultra-left, that's not the purpose. The purpose is class abolition. So... One of the things that they said, you know, part of it from labor aristocracy, but part of it from with the uh, condition they call the subsumption, the subsumption of everyday life in the capital, that a lot of these groups, even when they weren't labor aristocratic, cannot give up their identity as the working class. And so actually self-sabotaged. And that was something that you saw on the ultra left early on. Because it was a theory about – it's a, basically an expansion of the theory of trade union consciousness that you saw you know, coming out of even Lenin in the 19-teens. When they've tortured and scared you for 20-odd years Then they expect you to pick a career When you can't really function, you're so full of fear A working class hero is something to be A working class hero is something to be Keep you doped with religion and sex and TV And you think you're so clever and classless and free But you're still fucking peasants as far as I can see A working class hero is something to be A working class hero is something to be It's kind of surprising that there is still such a wide variety of thought on organizational forms, especially after, say, Occupy or something. Do we see people head back towards a more Leninist party approach? Um, no. I mean, even the Bordi the interesting thing about the Bordigist is Bordiga himself was kind of an ultra-Leninist. 
he believed that the party should have as many factions as it needed and that every possible point of view of the working class and communists should be represented. So when we think of Leninism, we think of like centralism and shutting it down. But he did believe that the party should run society, that there should be factions within the party that represent all kinds of diverse opinion and that they should never be silenced but that the party itself, this collection of these various factions, should run society as sort of its brain. What is interesting is after, say, 1966, 67, right before 68, a lot of the people around the Bordigas movement give this up. They just give up the idea of a party. So they're left with the brain but no structure. Yeah, they, they, they don't think the party is an accurate structure for the idea of the brain, you know, the social brain that it's supposed to be. Basically, the the one thing, the one criticism of the ultra left that I think is actually true, but I think it's true because there's deeper problems involved, is that we don't have. I say we. I consider myself on the ultra left. Does not have a coherent theory of organization anymore. If we don't trust the trade unions and we don't trust the parties and we're kind of skeptical of consensus-based collectives, what's left? We have councils, sort of, but we don't trust them in a parliamentary context. So, I mean, what's left? And a lot of my work on these guys and why I care so much is actually the what's left question. Like, isn't it amazing that even though unions have changed dramatically and parties have changed dramatically in bourgeois liberal culture, that we haven't come up with any new forms of structure to, to sort of deal with the functions that these things used to do? Because, because honestly... Parties and trade unions don't do the function they did in the earliest 20th century now either. They don't. They don't serve that function anymore, or all the functions. You know, we talked about this on the, the idea of the Vanguard Party, but that came out of a context where these parties were like social groups as well as political organization units, as well as ways to organize armies. And now most of these parties are like media PR groups trying to get people elected, all right? What do trade unions do? Trade unions strike and trade unions funnel money to lobbyists. In, in the United States, they, they're often owners of capital themselves, even though there's very little union membership in the United States. It's only about 18% of the workforce, and most of that is public sector unions. Even with that considered, you know, a lot of the unions get a lot of their money from stock, and then most of their money actually goes to the Democratic Party. So... It's not just that, that we don't have alternatives to them. It's that also the things that we do have don't serve the functions that they used to serve. They have a, a kind of a, a cozy relationship now with capital in their function. Right. And then when you look at things like Occupy, they're just not disciplined. It's very structured makes it undisciplinable. Yeah, and also that it's embryonic as well. You know, we can't expect a revolution just like that. I disagree with you about it being embryonic. I actually tend to think that Occupy is is something that's been brewing amongst anarchist circles since 1968. Okay, I'll take that. But I think that those circles are so small. That's true. They, they've never, With respect to the general population, they could never have any kind of power structure that could possibly impact. Right. Occupy was their first, was, was in a sense like their first stage show. But it has gone so poorly, particularly in the States. If you read what Occupy leaders, some of the early members in the movement have done or become, it's very disheartening. Well, you have Justine Tierney, who is now openly promoting neo-reactionaryism. An idea that, well, it's basically 
we should have capitalist feudalism. The smart should run everything, and it even gets into eugenics and some pretty ugly things. It's almost fascist. She was one of the, the early organizers of Occupy in the States. There's where she is now. Another one of the organizers is basically saying we should go back to living, you know, in 19th century style farm co-ops. I mean, it's just sort of a farce. A lot of Occupy has done a lot of stuff with activist movements. And I have to say, I was impressed with, you know, Occupy Sandy, but everything else I've seen past that has been sort of just pathetic. So getting back to what you were saying about why the why the working class aren't revolutionary. One thing that struck me when I was, I, I can't remember what I was reading, was about, you know, this this capitalist imperial model whereby the working class in, say, the West, they're within the system that exploits, say, the... Right, and then they're, they're paid above exploitation. Exactly. So you, you're in, you say you're living in England or Ireland or America or wherever in the West, and you know that you're doing a lot better than some poor guy in Africa or in South America. And you kind of have some understanding that, you know, the system is pretty good for you. That it's to me that seems to be quite a strong thing to stop us being revolutionary. I do, but I've actually looked at the data on this, and I think that the, when it comes to labor aristocracy, it doesn't break down cleanly by just imperialism. No, but but if you were in the West, well, what is the West like? I'm I'm not just asking this like as a as kind of a joke. I'm serious about this. Like, the car manufacturer in the West gets paid a ridiculous amount, you know, compared to their skill level versus a textile worker. That's true in the West, too. Furthermore, the idea that this is based off of super exploitation doesn't really work on the production standpoint. It works on the consumption standpoint. Yeah, like it's not a it's not a production understanding. It's not as if the West workers in their factories are getting paid really, really well compared well, to... Some Maoists believe that, that the West workers are getting paid well because of exploitation of the third world. I mean, there's a third world movement, third worldist movement of Maoists who say that outright. There's very little evidence for that, though. But it's the it's the Western control of, say, you know, wheat markets, not allowing, say, the development. So in that sense, it's able to control the surplus. Completely agree with you. And I think oh, it's also able to, to funnel goods at cheaper value, so purchasing power. So that the West, the worker is like the pact that he has with the capitalist now, it wouldn't be the same pact that a Sudanese worker would have with the capitalist. It's entirely different. I completely agree with you, but I have something to add to that that makes that theory as a way out problematic. So the, the way this is generally proposed is what well, we should organize the third world to actually overthrow this. And, you know, we should be organizing bourgeois, like leftist bourgeois nationalism, you know, to break down these imperial structures. That's the classical argument, right? It's actually Lenin's argument. The problem with that is the working class within those countries themselves mirror that process as soon as they're liberated. Explain that in more, de- more detail. What does China do when it becomes capitalist? Its bourgeoisie has been crushed. Its capitalism pretty much emerges from within the bureaucratic structure of the Communist Party and from within the working class itself. What does it do? It starts seeking resources and criminal accumulation in Africa. It thus becomes the very thing it is criticizing. You can also see that in national bourgeoisies in Africa and a lot of the liberation movements 
What did they do? They developed labor aristocratic groups among their own bourgeoisie in development and got stuck in that development and generally actually run things into the ground. But that's the history of all these revolutions, that they've all screwed up. Yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> but I mean, I'm just saying, like, <laughs> like my issue with third worldism isn't, isn't against labor aristocracy. I think that's part of why the working class doesn't want to give up its identity as a working class. There's no reason for it to, <laughs> particularly in the first world. But the thing is, a lot of people who think, okay, so let's go arm the peasants in, like, rural India... They're not looking at the actual history of the national liberation movements of the 60s. They didn't go well. And it was for reasons having to do with the working class there, too, because they developed labor aristocratic practices in their own country. If they're big enough countries, they started developing imperialist practices. I mean, we just, it's, it's obvious with China. It is painfully obvious with China. You know, and that's where this theory comes from. This theory is a theory of the of a different ultra-left, and then it's interesting to talk about this, because I actually do like to talk about the different ultra-lefts, and it's one that people forget about because it's not European, and that is the ultra-left of the Cultural Revolution. So that is the people around Lin Biao and the people uh, around the Shanghai Commune, and they argued a lot of this. In fact, our very, you know, phraseology of the three worlds, first, second, and third world, actually comes from them. It's not politically correct to say that anymore, though, is it? No, well, it's also not theoretically accurate because the second world is supposed to actually be the, the Soviet world, and that doesn't exist anymore, so... Well, there's always Belarus. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess you could say, like, the, the, the second world is, like, those few Soviets, those few post-Soviet states that kept their Soviet structure, all two of them. Let's not, let's not poke too much fun at them because some of them have nukes. Yeah, <laughs> they do have some nukes, I guess. The labor aristocracy theory is good in that it gives you a mechanism for how this happened, but it doesn't give you a total theoretical apparatus for why it seems to happen everywhere. So, Because it doesn't just happen in the West. That's my point. It happens whenever you focus on national liberation solely, what tends to happen is the development of an internal labor aristocracy itself. And, if, and like I said, if the country's big enough, it'll start developing imperialist I think it's the, probably the story of every political movement that after it becomes somewhat in power, that after a generation or two, the revolutionary types are gone. You get the people who are the social climbers and the people who want to do well for themselves, and they take over. That's because, you know, you were talking about the structure, but that's because the structure of the bourgeois state is left pretty much intact in all these revolutions. Perhaps that's, that's one of the learnings to take. Well, you, you, were, you have interviewed Peter Huddis, and I actually agree with him, where he talks about, like, you can't completely destroy the bourgeois state. It's too traumatic. But you basically, you, the goal is basically to strangle it. And it's, it's interesting to me, this is one, as a Marxist theorist in education, and not just a person who deals with the ultra-left, one of my biggest frustrations is how these socialists and Marxists actually tend to empower the bourgeois state. That, to me, is always a mistake. It is always a mistake. It was a mistake since LaSalle did it and Marx criticized him for him in the critique of the Goethe program. And these people who have supposedly read that and understand it go and do it again. So how, how did they do this? How did they empower the bourgeois state? Russia didn't completely destroy the state apparatus. I mean, the, the Soviets didn't destroy the state apparatus. They still had the power to taxate. They still had the power to issue currency. Just that by itself the power and maintenance of currency should be a red flag. 
Now, I don't think you could do away with currency overnight, and so some of that's justified. But they didn't move to do away with it ever. Probably the the English economy during World War Two got rid of its currency as as much as the Soviet state with rationing and not being able to spend your savings and things like that. Right. I mean, the currency was effectively meaningless because of rationing, and that's true. That was true in the Soviet Union too. That's not a different mode of value production. It's not, but it just shows you that it, in times of war, it's, it seems a feasible project. It's a wonder why in a time of revolution, it's not a feasible project. Well, it's just interesting to me because there's a theorist, Harry Flint, who can be kind of a nutcase. He's also another ultra-leftist. But he points out that most communist economies work exactly like war economies in capitalist countries. Now, of course, this is a little obscured now because the U.S. is always at war and doesn't work like a war economy, but that's because, because the U.S. is always at low-scale war. It's never fully mobilized. All they need is a big war. Yeah, like if, if for example, there was a war between Russia and the United States, Russia, I don't think Russia would invite that because Russia right now, even with the nukes, would probably lose. But that would be a full mobilization war. Speaking of the nukes, I was listening to some interview and... He said that Russia had 10,000 nukes that they can be placed under artillery and that with the moves in Ukraine and NATO going further east, that they're going to put 10,000 of them along the borders and they can just lob them in a few, a few miles, shoot them 20 miles in and explode them. That sounds like just such a recipe for disaster. You know, that sounds like an invitation to... to it, it's, it's, Armageddon. Yeah, it's like... Well, we've forgotten that mutually assured destruction still exists. I mean, if, you know, if when we talk about the ultra left right now, the whole thing is like we're trying to think of a way out of empowering the bourgeois state and into a new organizational form, and we're just continually hitting a wall. And, you know, I, I have cancel communist tendencies myself. I tend to believe that things are run pretty well by uh, a mixture of councils and what what Bordiger called our, our organic centralism, which is people who are good at stuff do that stuff. People do work along their natural inclinations, not not because they're forced to in a, a division of labor sense, but it's because they would what they're naturally good at. So if we look to the Spanish Revolution, that was pretty council communisty yeah. kind of organization. And they seemed to do pretty well, only they didn't have the resources. They were actually well able to fight the fascists and make decisions quickly. That seems to me like not really the issue. No, and I, I think the, the larger issue is uh, can that be organized on a world scale? If it can, we should look to it. I, I tend to think... How many things need to be truly global, though? Most things. That's the thing. That's, the, that's where I am. I don't think a global revolution happens all at once, but if capital exists anywhere, it will, it will expand. That is its very nature. You, you have to, you can't like have a detente with it. I, 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 I do think that the superstructure, so to speak, does have some, and it's not totally dependent on the base. It is 99% dependent on the base, but it's not totally dependent on the base. So you could be fighting, you could be fighting capital without militarily overthrowing every single country at once. But it would have, you would have to have that as your eventual goal. Well, let, let's not aim too high then. <laughs> I mean, like, well, I mean, but the, yeah, but that's what capital does. Capital itself has that goal. 
its structure mandates that it always expands. The only way to expand, you know, the, it expands for one simple reason. Without expansion, the declining rate of profits goes into overdrive. I mean, that's just how it works. It's always got to, it's always got to go through periods of uh, first primitive accumulation and market expansion. You know, it does so from the periphery to the core. So, for example, it tries to keep those on the periphery from fully developing, but it, it's not trying to keep them from developing at all. It needs those markets because the markets within, within the cores of capital are going to go stale, and they are. Actually, they are right now. They do it every so often, and it seems to be the only thing that stops them from completing that is a world war. This planet is history! I was looking recently at some long-term research into the rate of profit by this Argentinian guy called Esteban Maito, I think. I tried to get him on the show, but he doesn't have good English, he said. And you see, like, from 1800, the rate of profit in the UK. It's amazing to see just this prediction of Marx, if you want to call it a prediction, just work through the economy. You know, it's a startlingly clear demonstration of the validity of value theory. It's, a, it's amazing. And it's also, ironically, a pretty good explanation of the validity of imperialism theory, too. Because if you look, for example, at the declining rate of profits and the pay of workers, just looking at just straight up projected census data, I mean, like, we don't have census data for the UK for the late 1800s, but they have projected data and data on what people were paying. And during that increased rate of imperialism in 1890, you literally see a huge spike in pay from a huge spike in temporary profits, you know, what, what Lenin calls super profits. But it's a spike. It's definitely from a bunch of temporary accumulation from, you know, taking shit and then forcing markets on people. And it doesn't last very long. Things dip back down immediately. And what's interesting about since the 1970s, you know, with stagflation, but what you also see is there is a real decline of imperialism. And even things like trying to do imperialism through financialization it just doesn't seem to work as well as just actually taking countries over. There are not so many new places to go as well. Right. I mean, capital already exists in most, in most of the world. There are places where it's not fully developed. It hasn't subsumed all of everyday life, where there's still like traditional tribal forms of organization and all that. Those still exist. They exist in tiny pockets, and they're pretty much irrelevant. And in the core, Europe, the United States, I would also argue East Asia is part of the core now. That's completely done. It's over. It's a completed process. Well, I, I was watching some women's golf on the television last night, and it was all South Korean women. Were it was it was an amazing number of South Korean women 
This shows you how well the Koreans are doing. They're now dominating the golf. Well, it's just interesting because, you know, Korea is becoming what Japan was when I was a kid. And having lived in Korea, I'll be honest with you, my way of life in Korea was, my standard of living was higher than it would be in the States. They make less money, they have less purchasing power. That's completely true. But between social goods and efficiencies and just general well-being and the lack of poverty and lack and a relative lack of inequality comparatively to other capitalist countries, it was a better place to live. Now, it's, it's neoliberalizing now, too. It's going through that process right now as we speak. That process is being accelerated by the daughter of the last dictator. But it makes perfect sense to me. Like, if you're a working class person, when things are going good in a bourgeois society, things are pretty good. What people tend to forget is... As long as that declining rate of profits exists, the pressure for, you know, things like neoliberalization, further colonialism and stuff are going to exist. But that can't, none of that works forever. They're all temporary fixes, right? It's just like MMT. MMT works, but I think it works for about a 30-year cycle. In the long run, all these, all these band-aids aren't going to do much. But in the long run, capital can kill us all, too. People used to think about it was communism was teleologically going to emerge. And, you know, they used to say uh, socialism or barbarism. No, I think actually it's socialism or death. It could be primitivism. Yeah, or socialism. Yeah, socialism or death for ninety percent of the population. And the rest of us are going to be hunting elephants with some sticks. But there's not many elephants left, so we're kind of fucked. Not in Ireland, anyway. <laughs> I don't know what you guys been marmots. The first, the first sign of. The Dublin Zoo was going to be full of people looking for <laughs> some rare cuts. Once you go through the sheep, I mean, it, it's interesting. It, I really do think we're at this point. I should mention this because it's a relevance to your listeners because you have a very green listenership. But the less extreme faction of primitivism does come out of Bordigism. And that seems very strange because Bordiga himself was almost a technocrat. He had a very radical point. That the separation between cities and the countryside, as long as that separation existed, then there would still be a class society because there would be a fundamental break in both production and consumption. So he actually advocated for something basically like evening it out, taking all the centralized efficiencies of, of the city and bringing them to the countryside, but diffusing the population evenly. He wasn't arguing for something like what, you know, Pol Pot collected farms with no one using technology or anything and everybody starving to death. But he was, he was actually arguing that we should break down these huge centers of population, but not forget all the efficiency gains we learned from them. And again, I can talk about Korea. Korea is a place where I actually have seen some of this, and it's because of its small landmass. But because its landmass is so small, for example, there are massive high-rise living quarters even in the countryside. So you'll be, you'll be out in a rice field and you'll see these huge high-rise apartments. But that's for efficiency, all right? And the countryside's still there and they're actually, it's actually very lovely to live. You still have your countryside. You have, you know, you have land that's available for parks and sure, you don't own it. In Korea, it's usually either owned by a private corporation or the city government. What are the aesthetics like? It's pretty. The countryside is pretty. Now, the, 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 the buildings are just poor concrete buildings because Korea learned how to make stuff from Stalinist Russia. That's even true for South Korea. And it's cheap. But it could be nice. I mean, the, the living quarters are not necessarily crappy. They're, they're efficient. They're spacious. I never felt cramped in them. 
in the countryside. And so sometimes, the, you know, we had recycling programs. We had stable power. It's a small country, admittedly. So these things are these are different logistic problems. And in a, in a landmass like all of Europe or Russia or the United States. But I really saw in that sort of, you know, and that's from capitalism, but in that sort of concession to reality, what Berdiga was talking about, that we needed to, instead of hiding all of our super technological development in cities and also turning everything into, into farmland, that was another thing, that we needed to, to rethink how we organize this and to break up the urban, urban rural division while, you know, not getting rid of all the efficiency gains that you get from urban life while also not destroying all the environment. He, he advocated this strongly, particularly as he, get, he, as he got older. But his argument was that as long as there's, there's a distinction between rural and urban life, there is a class separation between workers and peasants. It will not be eradicated. You know, Kamet took that a little further and he talked about the teleos and technology developed in capitalism would have, you know, be hard to shift, that some of it could be reappropriated. But a lot of it couldn't. And he argued that, you know, for a while, maybe we should leave society and altogether, leave industrial society altogether. I, I think that's taking it too far. But this strain of ultra leftism actually realized really early that ecological problems would also lead to class problems. And that the structure of how we dealt with the, the environment was super, super important. And that we have been unthinkingly accepting things like bourgeois cities because of just basically habit. Speaking of bourgeois cities in London, where I'm living now, the house prices are just are crazy, gone crazy again. Yep, you are about to have a burble past in London. Maybe the Scots will pop it for us next week. How do you feel about that? Well, I'm an Irishman, so I fully think they should vote yes. I, you know, I, I thought maybe I was opposed to it because I'm usually like, oh, national liberation, but... I don't care, but part of me thinks balkanize everything. And it's not like the, Scotland doesn't want to leave the EU, so it's not like the, the, the EU isn't getting its tax money. It's, it's an interesting one, but, uh, you know, as an Irish guy, we fought to get out of the UK, and I'd like to see Scotland get out of it too. <laughs> well, I, w I would like Scotland to get out of it too. I, I think I'm pro, pro – I mean, in so much that I care at all, which I kind of don't, but I'm pro, I'm pro everybody, particularly if it makes the Tories look bad. Well, on that note, I'd like to thank you, Derek, for coming on the show today. Thank you. There was a wild colonial wife, Jack was his name. He was born and raised in Ireland, in a place called Castlemaine. He was his father's only son, his mother's pride and joy. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Gestures, by Sun Ra and his orchestra, and Paul D'Amato discussing the life and work of Antonio Gramsci, accompanied by Django Reinhardt and the Charleston. You also heard John Lennon's Working Class Hero, and Dr. Peacock and Repix destroying everything. To play us out, we have Tommy Makem and the Clancy Brothers singing the Wild Colonial Boy. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega.
And that was how they captured him, the wild 